0: Hello everyone and welcome to Introducing S3 Batch Operations. Uh, This is a feature designed to help you perform millions or billions of operations across your S3 objects. So I'm glad you all came out tonight. We're gonna have a demo as part of this. I really want you to see how this feature works and uh, be excited to try it yourself. It is in preview right now, so I'll remind you now and hopefully later in the presentation as well. You can find the preview sign up on the S3 homepage, you can find it in the documentation, you can find it in kind of the announcement posts that we made about the feature launching, but I'd love for all of you to sign up for the preview and and get your hands on this feature as soon as possible. My name's Rob Wilson. I'm a product manager on the Amazon S3 team. I'm joined tonight by Matt Sidley, who's another product manager on S3, and he will be test driving our demo for us. So on today's agenda, We've got an overview of a few of the features that help you operate at scale today. I want you to see how S3 batch operations fits into the existing portfolio and really complements and works with some of the other features. It's a really good complement with the S3 inventory feature that many of you might be using already today. And then we'll do a recap of lifecycle and cross-region replication as well, features where we do have some other recent additions and things to think about. Uh, We'll talk a bit about the new storage class, Intelligent-Tiering. So if you haven't heard of that yet and you're a big S3 user, chances are you've got workloads that are going to fit really well in this new smart storage class. It's going to intelligently move your data between frequent and infrequent tiers. Then we're going to go through a brief overview of S3 batch operations. So I want to give you all an introduction to the feature. Then we'll go into a demo, and you'll see kind of click-by-click through the console how you could get started with that. And one of the things I think you'll notice about this feature is it's not just for developers, it's not just for kind of the storage admin folks, but it's really for folks across your organization. So you're going to see through the console how easy it is to set up one of these large jobs. So somebody who needs to make a change across many S3 objects, we want to make that as simple as possible. So someone can just get into the console, get that job kicked off, and that could be for compliance, it could be to update access controls, but we want to make that as easy as possible. Uh, the use case of copying data to another bucket. We see that from customers a lot as well. Making that easy for you to do is something we absolutely want to do with this feature. Then we'll come back from the demo and go back into the slides, because there's a number of different things you want to think about when you're using batch operations, and we want to deep dive through a number of those. How to create a manifest, what different type of operations are supported, and how you should really think about the feature. It's asynchronous. It's doing a lot of operations at once. So it's not going to happen right away. And it might run for minutes or hours, depending on the size of the job. But showing you the progress visibility and the updates and notifications you can get along the way will be really valuable for you. Then talk about some of the common use cases. So we're going to support five different operations types. One of those is AWS Lambda functions. So as many of you know, with the serverless Lambda functionality, you can do a whole lot of things. So for that one, we'll talk about some of the common use cases you can address but with the native S3 functionality as well, start to think about how you could use copy to do some interesting things with your storage. Then we'll have some time for Q&A at the end. This is a brand new feature. We just started talking about it a few days ago, so I'm sure you have questions, and I would love to hear your feedback and questions after the session as well. If you're interested in other related breakout sessions, We've got on Thursday a storage leadership session. So this is something that crosses object storage, file storage, and block storage. So if you want to see the entire storage portfolio, that's a great one hour session to go to. And then on Friday, we've got another edition of the best practices for Amazon S3 and S3 Glacier session. So that's really going to deep dive on a lot of the features we introduced this week, but then talk about the broad S3 portfolio of features and how you can use the different storage classes. So I want to make you all aware of those, and those are both at the Mirage. All right, so when we think about operating at scale, we certainly think about a feature at S3 that's going to allow you to grow to petabytes or exabytes of scale. You might start with a small-scale um, environment in AWS, but then as your business continues to grow, your storage continues to grow. And we want to make that easy for you to manage, regardless of whether you have a few terabytes in S3 or whether you have hundreds of petabytes in S3. So you'll see a few features in how we try to do that for you. On the lifecycle management side, you have an ability to tier your storage. You set up simple rules, and then it moves to the different storage classes. Intelligent tiering does that automatically for you. So at an object level, it's looking at how objects are accessed and moving it between frequent and infrequent storage. Cross-region replication, once again, you set a rule in place, and you can replicate data to another AWS region. If you want the additional redundancy of having your data in two locations, that's certainly one of the reasons to use the feature. But if you just want to get data closer to end users or closer to other teams that might be spread across geographies, cross-region replication is a way to do that automatically. Inventory reports are a way to list out all your objects and all the related metadata. And you can have that delivered to your bucket every day or every week. And this is great for auditing and kind of answering some questions about your storage. We have customers that ask the question, how much of my storage is previous versions? You can do that with inventory reports, with a simple query through Athena, or loading it into a database. So there's a few different things you can do with that feature, and then we'll get into batch operations. On the lifecycle side, this is certainly a recap for many of you, but you can expire or tier your storage. We'll talk about a few of the tiering examples here. You can see a common use case right there where somebody might move data initially from S3 Standard to Standard Infrequent Access and then to S3 Glacier. And all you're doing is setting the rule based on object age. So when your object is perhaps 30 days old, you might want to move it to another storage class. Here are some of the examples we have for that. So in this case, a customer, after 60 days, knows that their data is less frequently accessed, moves it to standard infrequent access. And then after 180 days, it moves to Glacier. This is automated. Once the rule's in place, it's going to start happening on your storage. So easy to set up, and it's automated, so it's nothing on you to manage it on an ongoing basis. You might also look at our new Intelligent-Tiering storage class and then just move the data to Glacier directly from there. So 180 days in Intelligent-Tiering, that really handles the transition between when the data is more actively used at the beginning, when it's less frequently used over time, and then just move it to Glacier for that long-term archive. The Intelligent-Tiering storage class, I wanted to introduce you all to it. It's a new addition for this week. So it's monitoring access patterns at the object level. So a lot of our rules today are being set up at prefix, uh, tag level, or for an entire bucket. And that means you have a blended rule that might apply to all your different objects. With intelligent tiering, we're looking at the access patterns on each individual object. So if you move, let's say, 100 objects to intelligent tiering and five of them are frequently accessed, those five objects will remain in the frequent access tier. That's priced the same as S3 standard. So it's basically the same as if you have those objects in standard. And then for the other 95 objects that might be less frequently accessed, after 30 days of nobody accessing those objects, they go to the infrequent tier. That's priced the same as standard infrequent access, so you start to experience the savings of having your objects in infrequent access storage tier. There's no retrieval fees on any storage you put in intelligent tiering storage class. And all you have to think about is a monitoring and automation fee. So for the work we're doing to monitor your objects and to intelligently place them in frequent or infrequent tiers, you're paying a monitoring and automation fee. So no retrieval fees, pricing similar to standard and infrequent access tiers, and then the monitoring and automation fee. So uh, it's a great storage class when you have changing or unknown access patterns. So I encourage all of you to take a look at that. You can put data initially into intelligent tiering, or you can tier it to intelligent tiering from standard or from standard infrequent access, for example. This is the overall portfolio as you start to think about how intelligent tiering fits into the mix. So you do have standard for more actively uh, active, frequently accessed data. You have the infrequent access tiers with standard and then one zone. For any of you that aren't familiar with one zone infrequent access, that is data placed in one availability zone. So something to think about for maybe recreatable data. Something that might not be as critical or something that you could recreate if needed. (coughs) And then intelligent tiering is a blend of that frequent and infrequent access tiers. So it's a good fit when you're not sure exactly what the access patterns are. And then S3 Glacier at that price point for long-term archive is a great fit. You also have the announcement today of a new coming storage class, which will be S3 Glacier Deep Archive where you have a price point even lower than the S3 Glacier you're seeing here on the screen, the price point's 75% lower. So when you really want to maintain data for the long term and you have a lot of data, at that price point, you're going to be able to retain your data for that much longer in the cloud. Cross-region replication, automated feature. You specify what region you want to copy your data over to, and it's replicated to that other region. You can set this policy at the bucket prefix or the object level, because you can now set object tags saying what objects should or should not be replicated when they land in your bucket. You can go from any region to any region. So you have the flexibility to find the pattern that works for you. You can move to any storage class. With one of the announcements we just made this week, the direct put to S3 Glacier, you can now set up a replication policy to replicate to Glacier in the destination region. So now you're blending your storage costs with a much lower number in the destination region, makes it easy to retain data and potentially replicate more data than you were today. You can also do replication across different accounts, change the ownership in the destination bucket, such that you have that much more protection against maybe a malicious internal actor. So you're worried about somebody deleting the data, now it's in a different account, it has different ownership stack, it's a protection against somebody trying to delete the data. And then Amazon S3 inventory, as I mentioned, it's a list of all the objects in your bucket. So one of the ways you're going to see this feature tie in with S3 batch operations is that you could run an inventory report on a bucket, get that list of everything stored in the bucket, and then say, I want to copy all those objects to another bucket. And now you've already got the list because you ran the inventory report. And now you use that as the list of operation, the list of objects to hand to batch operations and specify for everything listed in this manifest, take this action, and then show me the progress along the way. So it's an easy way to create that list for yourself, whether at the bucket or prefix level, as you might do with S3 inventory today. One of the other features we announced this week, S3 object lock. So that is a way to put a legal hold or to put a retention date out in the future, uh, until which your object cannot be deleted. So if you have data you need to hold on to, whether for compliance requirements, or you just have potentially a situation where you need to retain data and ensure it's retained for a period of time, The object lock feature blocks deletes for that period of time, make sure that data is not overwritten as well. So with S3 inventory, you'll be able to see what compliant, you know, is it a compliance mode or governance mode that that retention is set to? What's the date out in the future up until which that object is going to be retained? And then is a legal hold turned on or off for that object? S3 inventory is a great way to get visibility across your entire storage footprint. And now back to the kind of overall theme of this presentation, uh, S3 batch operations. We'll dive in and start talking about how the feature works, and then we'll get more and more details as we go through. So at the most basic level, this is a feature that is designed to help you do things in bulk on S3. You store potentially millions or billions of objects in S3. When you need to take action across many of them, perhaps all of them, we want to make that something that you don't have to build an application to do. We're going to manage that on your behalf. You just give us the list of objects, and we will manage that throughout the process. So you specify the manifest of objects. That's stored in S3 as an S3 object. So you're saying batch operations perform an operation on all the objects you know, stored in a particular S3 object. So that's your manifest. That's the term we'll use today. Select the operation type. Could be copy, could be restoring objects from Glacier, running a Lambda function on your objects, putting object tags, or putting different object access control lists. So ACLs are what they're commonly called. So five operations you'll be able to perform on your objects. And then on viewing the progress, everything from individual object progress, so you can see the count of successful and failed operations, you're going to be able to see and receive notifications when your job proceeds through different states. Your job initially goes to a new state, and then it goes into a preparing state as we're reading the manifest and kind of seeing the full list of objects you submitted. Then it later moves to an active state. That's when we're calling the API for the individual operation you specified. And then it eventually gets to a completed state, for example. So you could have that notification notify you when it's completed, just so you know the job's complete. Or you could have that event trigger a follow-on action downstream. So after this batch operation is done, what operation is then happening after that, once that operation is completed, you can connect connect that together using notifications so you see the progress along the way. We built this feature to make it simple for customers to do these large-scale jobs. Customers ask us things like, how do I move 300 terabytes of data to another bucket? It's hundreds of millions of objects. I don't want to build a tool that's going to do that. Maybe this is a one-time transfer for a customer, so they don't want to spend the time. They don't want to spend weeks or months of development time fine-tuning, testing, you know, verifying that that tool works for them. Just hand it off to batch operations. On the next one, a lot of customers, when we launched object tags, said... Well, now that I'm putting new data to S3, I'll start adding tags to it because I want that metadata, whether to use it for lifecycle or access controls. But then they said, I've already been using S3 for years. Maybe I've been using S3 for five or 10 years already. I've got tons of objects already in my bucket. How do I go back and tag those as well? So if you want to do something like tag your existing objects and then go back and tag the existing ones that are already there, batch operations will help you do that. And then in the last example, we have customers moving more and more of their data to Glacier for that long-term retention. You might have cases where you want to restore a lot of that data. You might have partners that potentially you are a media company and you have content libraries and you might want to distribute that to a partner in another part of the world or you know just a partner in another bucket in the same region. You want to move that data to them and it's easy for you to use batch operations to say all these objects, send the restore request to Glacier, use a new feature, which is Glacier restore notifications, and then you'll know when that data is available and you can copy it over to their bucket once again using batch operations. So it's something that you might be doing at scale with terabytes or petabytes of data, but now you have a feature that's gonna help you every step of the way to get that data distributed to a partner. It's a managed solution. It's gonna handle things like retries. So some of you might be thinking, maybe I've already built a tool to do this or maybe I've done work like this in the past. What are the kind of things that batch operations is gonna take off my plate? You've got to be able to handle retries, and that's something batch operations is doing automatically. It's got to be able to scale to any size job. So as customers continue to grow on S3, we don't want to hit this artificial cap where you say, I want to do a batch operations job, but I I hit some number where I can't do it anymore. We're going to be able to scale with you to millions, billions, maybe even trillions of objects. So as you scale, this feature will scale with you. Progress visibility I touched on before. The management controls are really interesting. For each thing you do in batch operations, you're creating a job. So a job might be for these objects, copy them to another bucket, that's one job. For that job, you can change this priority level because you might be running many different jobs and it might be important that some of them complete before others, some of them run and use resources before other ones do. So you can change priority, you could cancel a job, you can describe that job, which is a way to get the progress of the job. So if you wanna pull the progress of that job or check on it over time, just use the job ID and you can check on that individual job. If you want to list all your jobs, you're going to have that functionality as well. And that list is going to include progress as well. So potentially you can view many jobs at once and see how there are and how they're progressing along, progressing along the way. Notifications we'll touch on a little bit later. And then on the auditing side, something I haven't said yet is. When customers are doing these large-scale jobs, I mean, they want to make sure it was done correctly. They want to make sure that everything was completed. And if it wasn't and there were some errors along the way, they want a way to go back and easily say, well, showed me all the failed operations so then I can kick off another job to complete those as well. You've got the ability here to create a completion report, and that could be listing all the operations we attempted to do or just failed operations. So you have a way to specify, you know, I either don't want a completion report because I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to check on this job in the future. You could have an audit report of all the operations completed, or just failed operations, which might give you a very focused list. You then take action, update permissions, for example, to correct that. And then you can just run the job again for those particular objects and get it done. So a lot of different tools here that are just going to take work off of your plate and make this a really managed, simple tool that you can onboard with. Uh, This is another way of visualizing how it works. So when you choose objects, you can use an inventory report, as I mentioned or you could just use your own CSV list. So you might start with something like an inventory report and say, well, actually I want to run a query and only run something on you know, 10,000 objects, maybe 100,000 objects. So you could run something like an Athena query or do your own process to specify what objects you exactly want to apply this action to, then just write it as a CSV and store it in S3. So I'll talk a little bit about how to format that later, but it's designed to be simple. It's designed to be something that you can easily take a list of objects, create a CSV, and run this. On the operation side, this is a recap from something we mentioned before, but there's five different operations you can do. And I think we're really excited to see what people do with Lambda and this feature. Because with all the storage you have in S3, there's a lot of different APIs you can wrap inside of Lambda or some of your own code you can say, well, this is something relevant to my business. This is some of our business process that we can now push to the storage layer by just running Lambda and this and then storing the results in the completion report, which we store. So if you have something you want Lambda to respond back with, you can put it in the completion report and then you have a list of all those responses, or you could have the response stored in a database or whatever other service you wanna connect in. And then on the progress side, it's object level progress, job level notifications as the job proceeds, and then that completion report. So a lot of things built in with this feature that should really help you get started with it on day one. Why are customers excited about this and why have we built this feature? It's going to save you a lot of development time. You're not going to have to manage your own tool or learn other services to try to build a tool to operate in bulk. We want to take that work off your hands and just let it be an asynchronous process you kick off and don't worry about it again. It's simple. So folks throughout your organization, whether they're you know deep into the code or somebody who wants to do something through the console, you can ma- mirror all the functionality of this feature through the console experience. And then it's managed. So you're not worried about infrastructure. You're not worried about how many hosts are going to take to run this operation across millions or billions of objects. So that's the goal is to make this simple and managed for you. And with that, let's jump into the demo. All right. So Matt will be our driver here. We're going to switch over our input. Uh, So that should be good. All right. So to orient you, this is a new thing you're seeing for the first time. Some of you might have noticed some changes to kind of the S3 console, but on that left panel there, you're seeing you know, I want to view all my buckets, I want to do batch operations, or one of the other features we just announced, block public access, is something you can set at the account level so you have access to that on the left. Why are you seeing batch operations along with buckets? Well, if you're doing a lot of batch operations across a lot of objects, it would be potentially difficult or you know, not as useful if you were viewing that only in each bucket experience. So what you're going to see here in the dashboard you're looking at is a region-wide view. So if you have many batch operations in Northern Virginia region, you're going to see them all appear here. They could be acting across different buckets, and you're still going to see them all in one view because we want to give you that kind of command center or dashboard view of everything that's happening in your environment. Uh, You've got a couple different things you can do once you're looking at your different jobs. Uh, So Matt, we can look at the search bar first. Uh, We're just going to type in copy Uh, So you see one job there where in the description column, somebody named this copy. They probably cloned this job from a previous one and just called it copy. Uh, So you're able to search for that right away. And then Matt, if you type in 5e, which is kind of a random string, but I'll show you guys how that applies. The job ID is a unique string. So that's something that's generated when you submit each job that's designed to be unique. So if you come into the console and you know your job ID, just plug into the search box and find exactly what job you're looking for. The way to use the description field is something you're going to create when you create a job. So make that meaningful to you. That could be a date. That could be your you know, particular user ID or your name, so you can search for it later on. Could also be a team or an application or something else that applies to this job. Uh, or it could be something about the operation. So in this case, we've got set tags on both of those descriptions. So somebody can easily know, oh, I know what this job does. All right, so we can back out of that, Matt. And then you've got a status dropdown column as well. So first, we want to see all the jobs that are not started yet. And you'll see that includes a few different kind of more granular categories. But in this case, we'd be reading the manifest of those particular objects. So you're looking there. These jobs are in a preparing state. You're using this kind of state view to say, does this match my expectations? Let's say you created a job yesterday, and when you log in the next morning, you're like, well, was it completed yet? Was it, you know, did it fail? Was there an error? This is a way to just go to that drop-down arrow and see those jobs that meet that criteria. In this case, we can also look at if we do that drop down and see what jobs have failed, for example, uh, we can go down the bottom and we're only going to see jobs that meet that criteria. There was a job. We can, if we open it up, we'll see more details about it. In this case, we'll just look at the overall dashboard view. But when you have a failed job, it's going to give you a clear status. Why it failed? Maybe there was something wrong with the permissions. Maybe there was something wrong with the manifest. But We're gonna give you descriptions that are easy to help you go and troubleshoot and actually get that job up and running again. Because we know you came to batch operations to get something done. We're gonna make this as easy as possible to troubleshoot and get that job running again. Then we can look at canceled as well as a different status. Uh, So it's easy to filter the jobs when you're gonna have many of them running at a time. You want this visibility of maybe all the active jobs and seeing their progress, but it's also gonna maintain a 30-day history of all the jobs that have completed. So after a job's done running, It's going to stay in for 30 days in this view. So you can still have that visibility, check on it, where's the completion report stored, grab that URL for the completion report. So you'll have all that visibility here. Uh, We can go back to the overall view. So go back to the all column. We're once again back to the view of jobs. We just put some dummy data in here to kind of interact with today. On the region side, we're looking at Northern Virginia. You could pull up Ohio, we could pull up any other region. So you can take a look at that real quick. You can pull up Ohio. Uh, Similar data in this case, but your company might have a few primary regions it operates in. This is an easy way for you to flip through that, and then I think having that regional view should make it easy for you to say, well, I've got 10 buckets that I'm running operations on. If you can see them all on one screen, hopefully that's that much easier for you to understand progress and what's going on. Now, let's go back to Northern Virginia, and then let's show them how to create a job. Let's do that. Uh, So, we're going to do a simple example here where we'll use an inventory report. And then we'll just do a restore from Glacier, but we'll have some other slides later on where you can see some of the different parameters. So in this case, we're just gonna run the job in Northern Virginia. I'll go into more details about that later on. Uh, S3 inventory report. Matt, you can go ahead and paste that link into the field. Uh, So in this case, we have the link for our manifest.json. For those of you that use inventory reports, there's a headline file that then identifies all the data below. An inventory report could be a potentially very large report. So we sort the individual data files. All you need to worry about and specify here is the overall manifest, the points to all those data files. We know exactly what to read in for, for doing the operation here. And then we don't need to specify a version ID in this case, but that may be relevant to you, depending on how you're storing your manifest. We want to make sure we get the right manifest. We want to make sure we get it right so the version fields there as you need it. And then we can go to the next screen. All right, so we'll take a look at the different parameters that you can see for some of these different ones. So Matt, you can select put copy. Uh, so this is just the copy operation as it exists today. As we scroll down a bit, you're going to see you've got paths like, OK, what's the destination? I could specify a destination bucket, a destination prefix. One of the interesting things you can do with this feature is if I have objects in you know, bucket A, let's say, that's in the Northern Virginia region, and I want to encrypt them, or I want to change the storage class, copy is a way you can do that. And you just copy those objects back to the same location. So if you want to just change the encryption type of an object, just copy it back to the same key where it's stored today, and just specify the encryption being server-side S3, server-side KMS. That's something you can do today to, you know, if you have unencrypted objects stored in your bucket and you want to encrypt them, that's a way to do it. And then on the other side, we have customers that might occasionally want to move data back from infrequent access to standard, for example. You could do that by just doing a copy operation and switching the storage class. So it's an option for you. Uh, Server-side encryption appears there. You specify the access control list of the object, and then you're also specifying things like tags that you might want to add. So these are all there in the console view. You're customizing exactly how this operation acts, And another way to think about this feature is batch operations is going to apply the same operation to all your objects. So when you think about any action that's going to apply to all objects the same, batch operations is a great fit. If you want to take a different action for each object, potentially that's logic you could build into a Lambda function and run it that way. Or maybe it might be something you want to run outside batch operations. So you can certainly think about some different use cases and what might fit in or outside of batch operations. Let's go back to the top take a look at some of the other operations and how we can get started with those. Uh, So the next one's Lambda functions. Uh, For those that are familiar with Lambda functions, you would have created the Lambda function in Lambda. You can specify the version to make sure we grab the right version of that Lambda function. You might have edited that over time. And then it's just going to load up the description and runtime so you can kind of verify it when you're in the screen, but very easy to get started with the Lambda, as you can see. There's very few things you have to specify on the S3 side to get running with that. On the replace-all-tags side, as you would imagine, the primary thing you're specifying there is the key and value pairs. You can specify up to 10 object tags per object. Uh, So you would just do that in the screen and keep adding tags depending on what you want to do. And then access control lists. So if you want to update those for any reason, so these are object ACLs and who's going to have access to that particular object, this is a way to just go ahead and specify not only your account's permissions, but other accounts as well who might want to have access to those objects. And then restore from glaciers. the one we're going to do as part of this demo. So let's keep the data around for 60 days. For those that are not familiar with this feature, we create a temporary copy of your Glacier object in S3. So you can download it, use it, you know, copy it over to another location. So it's in S3, it's millisecond access, it's ready to go. And then it's just a temporary copy. So after 60 days, that temporary copy goes away, your data was kind of in Glacier the whole time anyway. So your data is maintained in Glacier. This is really just a feature to create that temporary copy so you can use the data in a more active way. And we're going to stick with bulk retrieval, because we are pulling a whole lot of data back today. We're OK with waiting a little bit longer for it, and it's a lower retrieval fee if you're using bulk. So let's go to the next screen, see what else we can specify as part of this job. At the top, we're fine with that description for today. It's just loading today's date and the description by default. But you can put anything you want there. That could be your username, could be some other details, maybe a you know, reason about why this particular job's running, maybe what project it's associated with. Anything you want to keep there then sticks with the job throughout, so it's easy for you to go back to the job history and understand why that job was run. On the priority side, let's go with priority five. So we'll talk about priority a bit later, but it's completely relative to other jobs you're doing. There's no overall like, global system of priorities that your job's going to land in. Your jobs are only concerned about your other jobs. So if you have one job that's more important than the other, just set the priority number higher. Higher number, higher priority. So that matches with some other AWS features we have today. So in this case, we're going to use priority five, and you'll see a lot of the jobs in the dashboard later are at about priority 10. So we just set this at a lower value. We want to generate a completion report for all tasks because we want to see a report of everything we're going to do here. And then we can do the browse experience for the bucket here. Uh, There's like a test bucket halfway down that we'll drop this into. So you can click on that. Uh, Click on the testing bucket right in the middle uh, outside the URL. Uh, You can go back to the S3 on the top or just cancel back. Uh, Yeah, so just click outside the name of it on the testing one. Yeah. And then you can choose that. Uh, So that's a way that you're just choosing the bucket where the final report is actually stored, and that's something that's persistent. So that'll have job details, you know, what was the job ID, what was the description, what were the different parameters, and then that sits in your bucket. So if you want a persistent history of a job, this is a way to do it. You'll also have CloudTrail functionality with this feature as well. So whatever auditing works for you, this could be complementary, this could be the the way you store it. And then down the bottom, we'll just use creating a new IAM role. Uh, We'll touch upon this again later as well, but... The IAM role is the way that batch operations has permission to do things. So to read your manifest, we're going to need permission to do that. To perform the operation, like a restore from Glacier in this instance, that IAM role is going to have to specify that permission. So you just want to create a role that has the right set of permissions. And that's a way for you to scope exactly what batch operations can do so you know what the bounds of this job are. uh, And that's a way for you to control it. So we're just going to cancel out of this screen. Normally, obviously, you'd create the job. But we just want to get back to the dashboard. Another interesting feature, uh, a part of batch operations that's only console, only for console users, but it's a nice convenience, is Matt. We can just click on any of the jobs. That radio button to the left, uh, right there. Yeah, just select any of them uh, and click on Clone Job. So Clone Job is one of the options we have up here, and it's kind of just what it sounds like. It's saying, I already have parameters that make sense for this job. Maybe I know it's a tag job. I want to apply these certain tags. I want a completion report stored in this location. If everything's already set up to run, and all you have different is a new set of objects, so maybe you already ran this this job for a particular bucket, and you want to say, well, I just want to do the same job, but on a different bucket, all you're going to do is scroll down here. It pre-populates everything else that you've already done, and then you can just change the manifest. So, it's very simple for you through this console experience to just say, same settings as the previous job, new manifest, run it. And that's an easy way for you to get up and running with potentially larger number of objects that cross many buckets. Uh, And then, certainly, if you're using the SDK, API, and CLI to create jobs, you can set this up to do it programmatically in other ways to actually replicate those parameters across jobs. So, we can cancel out of this view, go back to the other, back to the console. Uh, So, back to the dashboard view. We want to go ahead and update priority of a job. So let's go to that fourth one down, Matt. Yeah, the one that's preparing. Fourth one, fifth one, you know, to each his own. Uh, So we'll go to that one and just show you how easy it is to update priority. So we can do that at the top of the screen. Uh, Right now it's priority 15, so it's going to show you the current priority. We're going to change that back to priority 10. Let's just do that. And then scroll to the bottom and update priority. And you'll see on some of these views, you know, we're going to show you the other job parameters because we want to give you that double check along the way where it's, I took an action on this job. Was this the action I wanted to take? You'll see that replicated in the next one we're going to show, which is canceling a job. So we can go ahead and save that priority change. We can show you the update on the console if we just scroll down a bit. Uh, you'll see that that priority 10 is now updated. It's simple. You know, It's not the most amazing thing that AWS has ever created. But we updated the priority and we saw a change. So we're good to go. Uh, And then we can grab a job. So we'll grab that same one or the one below it. So one of those jobs in the preparing state. And we say, well, for whatever reason, I actually want to go ahead and cancel that job. So we select that job, cancel job. One of the things you'll see on this screen is a cancel job reason. So it's something optional. But if you have an audit record, once again, where you want to specify why was this job canceled, what do I want to persist with this job on why it was canceled, specify it in that field. Otherwise, we'll just scroll to the bottom. Once again, verifying, is this the right job? Is this the right one I'm canceling? And then you go to the bottom, cancel that job. And it's that easy to go back to the main screen, see that it's canceled. So simple functionality, but at the same time, when you're managing many jobs, it's great to have that right in the console and great to be able to interact with your jobs in that way. And then you'd, uh, as you're running jobs, be able to see that progress update. So this dashboard could just be your way to log in, kind of get an overall view of what's happening. Uh, So we'll jump out of the demo at this point. I'll just flip the screen back. And we're back. Cool. This was our backup video, but we didn't get to use it. We just used the demo. It was great. All right. Uh, So recapping a few of these screens, this is the list view that we talked about earlier, so a dashboard view really to see your jobs. When you're selecting the operation, it's something that you're doing in the job creation flow, and, you know, we'd love to hear your input on further operations to add, you know, things that your business is trying to do. Configuring the different options. So completion report, what makes sense for this particular job? Do I want a completion report of everything? Only failed tasks, something easy to create and part of the flow. Verifying the job details. So this is the last screen. And because this is batch operations and you might be acting across many objects, you'll see there's a number of places where this appears. We really want you to think about, you know, is everything entered correctly? Are the right tag values there? Because this is going to apply to a lot of objects. And I think a way to think about this feature is there's no simple undo button. So you want to make sure you have the right parameters set before you create a job. Cloning the jobs, just going to mirror the parameters. So we talked about that. And then updating priority was a simple, easy way to kind of jump in and out of the UI to do that. Uh, Canceling jobs, specify that cancellation reason if it's relevant to you. So at this part, I want to recap a few of the things we talked about so far and talk about them in a bit more detail. The manifest creation, an S3 inventory report, for those of you that use the feature today, there's many different pieces of metadata you can specify in an inventory report, and Batch Operations does not mind. Pick whatever inventory report works for you, and we know how to read the file, we know how to pull the relevant pieces of information out. What we're looking at is the bucket name, the object key, and then version ID. Version ID is an optional field in Batch Operations, so for those that are familiar with the behavior today, when you specify a version, we know exactly what object and what version to act upon. But if you leave that field blank and you have a version bucket, we're going to default to the current version of the object. So whatever the, most, the latest one written to S3 is, that might be the behavior you intend, but it might not be. So just think about whether you want the version ID specified or not as part of your manifest. And then it's that simple. So when you're creating a CSV, it's just those three fields. That's all you need to do. So how does it execute the job? How does it work? What's the kind of secret sauce behind the scenes? As you see, we're supporting existing API operations. So for Lambda functions, we're invoking the Lambda with the object key specified. So that's kind of the critical piece of the payload we're sending to Lambda. And then for the other operations, we're calling the copy API. We're calling the put tag API. So the behavior you know and expect from those APIs is what you're going to see in batch operations. And that can be really useful when you start to think about How's my architecture going to leverage batch operations for the large jobs? And then how am I going to complement that for potentially an event-driven architecture or something different for smaller scale numbers of operations? So because we're using the same API, you're going to be able to mirror that behavior, whether you're using batch operations or not. It includes CloudTrail support. So if you're using CloudTrail today for data events and having that audit record of all the API actions completed, if batch operations is doing that, all of that will be stored in CloudTrail. And it allows you to customize the API parameters. So we looked at copy, how you can specify different tag values or how you can specify storage class or encryption type. That's all going to be there as you set up the feature. And then permissions are an IAM role. uh, So we'll touch upon that more. And then it's simple to use with your existing applications. So it's APIs you're already familiar with. Setting up permissions, I just want to highlight the things at the bottom. I talked about them before. We need permission to read the manifest. The manifest could be in a different bucket than you're acting upon. Probably is. It could be in a different region, even. So specify where that manifest is. We've got to have permission to read that. Performing the action on the source and destination buckets. So if it's a copy, we need permission to act on both buckets. And then writing the completion report. So to write back to that location, make sure that's specified in your IAM role for this job. It can be customized. So the first step here is something we haven't mentioned yet, but you might have seen in the UI, was a confirm and run step. So for jobs that you want to make sure the manifest you specified was the right manifest, or you just want to go back later on and make sure this job is absolutely correct before you kick it off, what we're going to do is, when you initially create that job, we're going to read through the manifest and then put the job in what we call a suspended awaiting confirmation step. So the job is going to stay there and not execute until you go in and confirm it. You can confirm it through the console or through the API SDK CLI, and what we're doing in that period of time is reading through the manifest. So I think an example that I've talked to other customers about is you might want to just run a small test job on batch operations. Get a feel for the feature. So you specify a manifest that's like 5,000 objects and you want to tag them. If you go to that confirmation step and see an an object list that now says it's going to act across a billion objects, that does not match your expectations. Perhaps the wrong manifest was specified. Perhaps, you know, something was entered incorrectly on the manifest. But that's an opportunity to then say this doesn't match my expectations. That's not the number of objects the objects I wanted to act upon. So just go ahead and cancel the job, start over again, make sure everything's correct. So it has that additional state there. And then it's optional for you to specify confirmation required or not. Through the console, we're going to default this to on. So for any job created through the console, you will have to go back later on, view the ones that are awaiting confirmation, and then click them when they're ready to go. Setting different priorities for different types of jobs. So it is in relation to other jobs you specify. And it's not for strict ordering. So don't think of priority as like I set the priority and it happens in this order. Priority 10 jobs run, then nine jobs run, then eight jobs run, so I want to set up a sequence. Think of it much more as the priority 10 job is the one you know, with the highest precedence. So we'll work on that first. We'll make sure that job's active. And we might, you know, pause a priority nine job if we need to to run that priority 10 job. So it's more about deciding which jobs are active at a time rather than strict ordering. So uh, we don't want you to think of it that way. If you want to build this into a workflow, you probably want an external, you know, service or tool to manage that batch operations is now done, now kick off the other job and do it in that way in sequence. And then specify the information to include in your completion report. So you have those flavors of everything, only failed or no completion report at all. You can manage your jobs. There is a number of new APIs we're introducing for this. You saw the create flows, so that one makes a lot of sense. Confirming and running the jobs is a step that you would then go in and say, you know, this job is now confirmed. That'll be an API call. Updating jobs is about changing the priority level. Describing jobs is getting the progress of an individual job. So if you want to have a dashboard or you want to update something downstream of how far along that job is, just call the individual a job ID, and you know you'll get progress for that job and see how it's going along the way. On the list jobs view, it's now about having a larger view of all the things happening in that region. Uh, So you'll be able to view all the jobs, and you'll have progress visibility there as well. The benefit of described jobs is, of course, grabbing the targeted value of progress for a particular job. And then canceling jobs, once again, simple API call to kick off that action. Think about, though, that batch operations is a large-scale feature. It is doing potentially many operations at a time. So that moment you cancel the job, it may take us some time to actually go through the cancellation flow and actually completely cancel that job. So some operations may happen in the meantime. So it is an asynchronous tool. It is not going to happen kind of instantaneously that you're going to see canceled reflected on the dashboard, as we did in the demo. That regional list view is going to show you everything that's going across buckets. And when you're trying to think to yourself, well, you know, do I just pick any region I want to run this job in? What, what, how do I think about that? For most of the operations, you're going to specify the region where the objects are. So if you want to tag objects, it'll be that region. And it'll just be about where the data is located. For copy, it's more about how the copy operation works. So you want to create that job in the destination region. If the source and destination are in the same region, that's pretty simple. But if you're doing a cross-region move of data, and you want to copy that data across region, you'll create the job in the destination location and that is how you create a copy job. So just think about that as you're creating copy jobs that go across region. So the execution details. It's so another interesting kind of automated things that are built into this feature to make it easy for you. One of them is an automated, automatic failure threshold. So if something's not set up correctly on a job and operations are failing, there's no reason that you want to run that job for hours to see failures on you know, every single operation. You want to get a quick feedback that something's not set up right. You know, maybe the right permission isn't included to to a particular operation. We'll give you a, a status you know, of why the job failed, give you the details, then you can update it and run the job for real. We don't want that to be delayed feedback that you get hours after the fact. We want to fail that job quickly so then you can get to fixing it and getting that job running for real. So we're going to wait until about 1,000 operations are completed. We don't want it to be a spurious failure where after one it just you know, kills the job but it's a 50% failure threshold. It's a fairly conservative value, but we don't want to kind of trigger on a lower number of failures. There there may be spurious ones along the way, or there might be a permissions thing for a particular prefix, so want the job to keep running. If more than 50% are failing after 1,000 at any point in time for the rest of the job, it'll just fail the job, and then you can get to correcting whatever issue there was and then run the job again. And then the speed can adjust. So for those of you who might be doing things in bulk in S3 today, you do want to think about you know, the speed of running that operation. You know, how many hosts, what's the right speed for kind of my storage footprint? Because you might have production running, applications running as well. And when you're doing something like copying data across region, that might not be the most critical thing happening if you're serving customer data at the same time. So batch operations is going to think about how much traffic it's driving to your bucket such that we're not interfering with those production applications. So we, we want this to be a background process that runs, still completes your job in a reasonable amount of time, but for the most part, this is happening in the background. Uh, operations are automatically retried, so we're handing those retries at the batch operations level. It's not something you have to worry about. And then Lambda functions, because we're using the request-response version of Lambda functions, you can talk back to batch operations. So if the response is that something in your Lambda function is seeing a throttle downstream in maybe another service or another you know, tool you're using it can pass that feedback back to batch operations, and batch operations will slow the rate of execution of the Lambda functions to adjust to that, kind of optimize for whatever your footprint is and what's happening inside your Lambda function. Uh, So that's something that's just built in, and uh, the other point I mentioned earlier is that the Lambda function can also then return other results, which might be something that's just stored in the completion report. So potentially something's calculated or metadata is going to be stored later on. You can write that back as well using the Lambda functionality. Job progress and notifications. Use describe job, use list job to see how your jobs are proceeding along the way. And then on the list view, it is a paginated call. So if you have thousands of jobs running, just call list multiple times and you'll see the paginated view and you'll see everything you need to see. And then CloudWatch Events is the way that you can then take that notification about a change in your job and then pipe it through SNS or other sources to then fan out that message to whatever follow-on process or just to your own Slack channel to kind of see how your jobs are doing. And then the management console, as you saw the dashboard view, easy way to see your jobs. Completion reports. So mention them a few times, but kind of what's going to be stored there? So it's going to match your manifest in the sense that it's showing you bucket, key name, and version ID. The order might be different from your manifest because we're doing so much fan out to try to complete this job faster. But you're going to see the bucket, key name, and version, so you can map back to the original object specified in the manifest. It's going to tell you whether it succeeded or failed. So did the operation work on that object? Did it not? And if it didn't, particularly, what's the status code of the error? What's the kind of error description? And then any kind of detail or result set, so things returned from your Lambda function, for example, they would live in the completion report. So you've got a number of different things you can do and query with the completion report once you get it. When we think about common use cases, I want you guys to to think about a few different things you can do with the existing set of operations. I think the, the feature might fall into two worlds. For customers, you might find different things interesting here. So for recurring workloads, like applying new object tags to drive lifecycle policies, that may happen on a recurring basis. Perhaps some other workflow completes in your environment, and then you know, well, all this data is no longer necessary. It's temporary. I might still want to change my mind you know, for a short period of time, but for the most part, that data is temporary. I want it to delete. Just apply the object tags, and then that process will kick off. So it won't happen right away as if you had done the delete call, but you could apply those tags to indicate what's the right lifecycle for that data. You could perform bulk Glacier Restores. So that might be something you do at the end of every month to run a billing report. It might be something you run annually. You can do that with batch operations. Uh, Standardizing data formats. So a lot of customers are building data lakes. They're storing a lot of different data in S3. And it might be stored in many different formats. Lambda could be the way to make that a more uniform data store, so then you can query it that much easier. And then copying data to back it up. So potentially something, once again, happened as part of a workflow. There's data that's now derived that I want to copy to another location. You could use batch operations for that. And then those one-time changes as well. So many different applications or many different users might be writing data to your bucket, and you want to update those object ACLs to make sure the permissions are set the way you want them to be set. Use batch operations for that. You could move data between different storage classes or change the encryption type using copy. So that's copying it back to the same location. You could use Lambda functions for creating thumbnails. So it's a common use case for Lambda today to use it with event-driven architecture, where a new object lands in your bucket and events triggered. That Lambda function runs and then creates a thumbnail and stores it in another bucket, another prefix. So you have that already built into your workflow. Now you can do this with your existing library as well using this feature. Copying data to another bucket might be a big one-time migration. might be standing up a new region with test data or kind of the initial footprint of what you need to run an application. That's an easy fit. And then bulk tagging existing objects. So talked about that use case earlier, where you can do tags on the puts. But then how do you address the existing objects? Batch operations could be a great fit. So replacing tag sets, you see the functionality there. Might be different departments you want to apply, different projects. And then when that's done with, you can write a lifecycle policy to expire. it. An interesting caveat I'll add for object tags, for those familiar with the feature today, you're updating the entire tag set. So if it's something where you wanted to just add a tag on top of existing tags, you want to think about probably a tool outside of batch operations to do that, because you want to read the existing set and then make sure you're only incrementally adding to it. If you have no tags today and you want to stand up kind of a new tagging environment or a new tagging system, then batch operations is great because you're writing the full tag set. But when you want to do a smaller manipulation of tags, maybe update certain things in tags, you might want to do that on a one-off basis. Restoring objects from Glacier, simple to just specify restoration duration. And then the type of retrieval. Putting new access control lists, easy to specify many different users. For the copying objects, this is also a way to think about kind of changing your key naming structure. So if you have potentially longer key names today, with the introduction of our performance improvements, you might have had hashes in front of your key names, and now you want to go to prefixes and have something much more clear cut where you know that certain types of data are stored in different prefixes take that data, copy it to potentially the same bucket or a different bucket, and you can also add a prefix in front of that data. So you could write all the existing data to a prefix that's all under photos, for example. So it's in a bucket under the photos prefix. It's all stored in there. And now you can write rules around based on that prefix. So the photos prefix might have its own lifecycle policy, might have its own access controls. And that's a way to kind of change the key name and add those prefixes at the beginning of an object. Invoking Lambda functions, I mean, the sky's the limit as far as how many things you can do in Lambda. You've got a 15-minute time limit now for Lambda functions, so you've got the flexibility to do that much more as part of your Lambda function. And then uh, there are many different functions already written today in the serverless application repository. So these are functions written by others, maybe written by other AWS services. So take a look at that if you're looking for ideas, looking for ways to get started with Lambda. Uh, We'll open up for some time for questions now, but I want to remind you all the features in preview today. So I encourage as many of you, all of you, to go and sign up for it. It's on the S3 homepage. There's an easy link. And then you can find that in other places in our documentation as well. I'll also say thank you on behalf of myself and Matt. And then uh, fill out the survey. Thank you. I can do a couple questions up front if people just want to shout them out, if they apply to others as well. uh, Or we can just take them up front. Go for it. OK, that's a good question. So uh, this gentleman was asking about delete as a bulk operation. Certainly customers have workflows that might need to delete many objects at once. I think that's great feedback for us. Um, I think the other thing we'd like to know from customers is you're all providing feedback is what kind of controls might you want in place for deletes that maybe you don't need in place for the other operations. Uh, But that's certainly something that I think um, would be an interesting one to add to this feature. Uh, So thanks for that feedback. That's a great question. So uh, you can have potentially many jobs running at once. So that priority is really about making that choice, like if we already have many jobs running and we can only activate one more, which one should it be? That's really where the priority comes into play. But you could have many jobs potentially active at the same time, performing different or the same operations. So they can run in parallel. Great. Yeah, so a couple things kind of embedded in that question. This gentleman was asking about running jobs in parallel. I think there's a couple things to think about. So, for those that are familiar with kind of S3's performance limits and kind of the best practices and kind of how much throughput you can expect from S3, if many different jobs are trying to access the same objects, you might see a slower amount of throughput for each job because all of those are trying to access the same object. So, it might be taking the same amount of TPS and then splitting it among potentially different jobs. The other thing this gentleman asked, and I think a different way to think about this question is, if one job is, let's say, tagging objects and another job is copying objects, potentially it's important that those happen in order because you might want to tag them all and then copy them to another location with those tags. If those jobs are happening at the same time, some of the objects will be tagged before they're copied, some of them won't be tagged before they're copied. So that, when you're thinking about multiple jobs, you might want to think about, you know, does this have to be done in order? And do I want to verify one's complete before the other one kicks off? That would be a great example to kind of think about that. Uh, so that one. Sorry? Can you cancel a job? Do you get to, does it roll back to the previous state? Uh, great question. So this gentleman asked about canceling jobs. Does it roll back to the previous state? So let's say you created a large job and 50% of that job's already completed and you're adding tags. Those are kind of individual operations that are already completed. So that's where I think the completion report comes in handy, where if you did complete that, if you did cancel that job, you now have a completion report saying all of these operations were successful on these objects. All of these you know, objects were not addressed and you know, the operation was failed or it was canceled ahead of time, so then you can think about what state am I in now, and when I do create maybe another job to complete that task, what objects should I specify? Uh, I'll take one in the front. Can you use a completion report as an input for the next job? Uh, That is is great, I think. Um, Right off the bat, you would uh, have to take that and create a new CSV, uh, but I think that's an interesting one for us to think about how we kind of tie these things together, so. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I'll take one from this side now. That gentleman standing up, yeah. Uh, can you copy cross account? Cross account copy, very common use case. So the gentleman asks about, can I copy cross account? Yes, you can. The only thing to think about in that case is permissions. So certainly you'll need permissions to access both accounts. But we see that commonly from customers. There are a lot of customers. I like the. T- I've heard the term from others before, meet me in the cloud. If you have different customers you know, with buckets in Northern Virginia, let's find a way to work together in the cloud so we're not pulling data up and down and so forth. So you'll be able to do that. Um, one from the middle. Uh, Okay, so there were a couple questions here. The first one was, maybe I have many versions of objects in my one bucket, and I'm gonna copy them to another bucket. The the way the versioning kind of works is, um, on copy in particular, it's going to apply a different version, and it's gonna depend on when those objects land. So you may wanna think about kind of using replication as a way to, to specify the version stack in a way that it's gonna keep it in order. So on an ongoing basis, but for the copy, you might wanna copy the previous versions first and then pre- copy the current versions later. It won't maintain the same ordering uh, with the copy the way it is today. The other question you asked was, can you remind me? Yeah, if I give back list. Okay. Got it. Uh, so the other question is an interesting one. So I specified one job with a manifest. Then I go and again specify the same manifest or maybe very similar objects and wanna copy them again. Batch operations is not kind of keeping track of the state. So batch operations will then start acting up on the initial object and start working through them all. So there's no, in this case for copy, there's no kind of deduplication where we say that object already exists in the other bucket. We will once again try to copy that object. So um, uh, the lady in the middle, she had a question or? Okay, same, it was a joint question. That's good. Um, blue shirt. Okay, yeah, let's do one and table the others. How many current executors of jobs do you get in an account, and can you raise that limit? Uh, so how many jobs would be running at a time? Um, I don't think we've kind of nailed down an exact number. I think it's going to depend on a few different factors. So um, I think the best feedback I'd probably have for you is if you see yourself bumping into a, a limit or you don't see enough jobs activating and you think it should be higher, just reach out to us. Uh, so I don't think I have, like, an exact number to share. Over there? Uh, did we talk yesterday about the same topic? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so because we're using the existing API, I mean, you're going to see similar performance to what you might be seeing today. Uh, so Glacier, you know, we're going to try to restore as many objects as we can and kind of pass those requests along. Uh, but if there's something where you can only have so many concurrent requests today uh, for a certain functionality, that will still be the same in batch operations. So that's kind of the high level, and then we can kind of look at the specifics of a case. Um, I think we can take a look at that and see where maybe we can improve or be more specific. Uh, I think some of those things are, are changing, so it's hard to tell. I'll try to repeat more of the questions. I think I forgot. Uh, one up here. Um, so that's a, a certainly an interesting one. If the objects are the right size and you can copy them dynamically through Lambda, you could take an object key you know read the data and then write that data back with a different you know key so you could use that key manipulation as part of the lambda function the case i was specifying was let's say you keep the entire key name as it is maybe with a hash somewhere in the middle but you just take that key everything after the bucket and just apply it to a new prefix then you're just kind of prepending prefixes in front of the hash so it would maintain the full key name but just have you know a prefix in front of it so Uh, so great question. I mean, there's, there's obviously subtleties to everything, but with the performance limits kind of moving up the 3,500, uh, so he asked if, sorry, not repeating the questions, but he asked like, is our hashing for S3 objects kind of necessary at all anymore? Uh, what we're seeing with a lot of customers is with 3,500 kind of write TPS right off the bat, 5,500 read TPS, and that's per partition. So as your storage grows, your number of partitions grow, your throughput will grow, I think we're just seeing that most customers don't run into any performance limits. Uh, the number I, I shared the other day in one of the presentations was 99.9% of customers. Probably never have to worry about this again. The pattern where you might still think about, like, should I, you know, try to work with S3 ahead of time? If I have a product launch and I'm going to skyrocket to tens or hundreds of thousands of TPS right off the bat, there might still be some work we can do to optimize that for you, so. Oh, I'll, I'll take another one, and then we can talk afterwards. I'm going to get kicked out of the room, too, so I'm got to... Uh, one more, probably, from the gentleman back there. So for some of the potentially expensive operations, like Glacier cost estimation Oh, that's good feedback for us. So the gentleman asked about cost estimates. Um, I think, as you guys can imagine, if you're doing something across millions or billions of objects, there's requests, there's potential retrieval kind of per gigabyte for Glacier. Um, I think that's great feedback for us to kind of think about a cost estimate or something else we could help provide you. Uh, So, that's good. So, I'm going to turn in the microphones. We'll probably meet out in the hallway if anyone else has questions. Thank you all for your time.